Welcome to the Homegrown Podcast, a place where we share the truth about food and farming from our kitchen to yours. I'm your host, Liz Hazelmeyer, along with my husband, Joey. Good morning. And together, we hope to inspire, educate, and equip you in your pursuit of true nourishment. Today's guest is Dr. Chatty Nabhan, who is a board-certified hematologist and medical oncologist and lymphoma expert. Dr. Nabhan is the author of the book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. This is exactly what we're going to be covering on today episode and I can't tell you how excited I am. Dr. Chatty Nabhan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much uh, Liz and uh, Joe and I appreciate you taking the time of your schedule to talk to me. Of course, we're so excited. So we want to dive into all of this glyphosate roundup Monsanto trial goodness but before we get there we want to know how you landed as the expert witness in the first three Monsanto trials. Yeah, no thanks. You know, uh, this was probably serendipity, to be honest. I, um, uh, I did lymphoma work for a long time. I'm, I'm a cancer specialist. I'm a cancer doctor, took care of patients, did clinical trials, and uh, focused on lymphoma uh, mainly, which is a form of cancer. More than happy to talk about this in a little bit. And um, somehow uh, my name was provided to a law firm in Virginia, the Miller firm, uh, and the Miller firm was representing several patients who, at the time, alleged that they developed non-Hodgkin lymphoma, the form of cancer I specialize in, because of their heavy exposure to Roundup. And um, they reached out to me and they said, you know, this is the information that we have. Will you be willing to review the evidence, take a look at um, the information that we have, the literature, and provide an opinion? And uh, will you be willing to testify on behalf of the patients? And I have to tell you, uh, I mean, when you're in practice for a long time, you often get called by many law lawyers asking you to look at malpractice cases. And this was not something I ever wanted to do because I think in that particular arena, uh, there's a lot of nuances that get lost in medicine when, when you when you in malpractice. So I, I never really did that. I never did any expert witness work. But I was pretty intrigued because, and I tell you why I was intrigued. I've always been taught by my teachers in school and as I was going through that pesticides in general increase the risk of uh, lymphoma. Hmm. And I was also taught that farmers have higher risk of developing lymphoma as a, as pro, uh, you know, as a profession than uh, folks who are not uh, in farming. But I was never necessarily taught uh, which pesticides, and just like pesticides as a category. Um, so I never, I did not actually know at the time a lot about Roundup per se, and it's how commonly it's used. And, and uh, you know, um, I said, well, let me just check this a little bit because I don't think I'm well informed to render an opinion. And I started really researching it and reading. And the more I read and the more I researched, the more I became convinced that the link is pretty strong. And um, and then they sent me some documents as well that were, um, you know, they were able to obtain through discovery because the, law, the, the lawsuits were starting to, to pile up. And I looked at those as well. And um, after I became convinced that the link between Roundup and non-Hodgkin lymphoma is strong, um, I said, I'm willing to, to look at individual cases and I'm willing to, to help you. But I had no idea, Liz, how big this was going to be. Like, mm-hmm. literally, like, have no, I, had, I had no clue the magnitude of this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I had no, just did not have the insight of what, what, how this is going to evolve. And as you know, and as your listeners know, this became a big, big, big deal. Yeah. So it's like common knowledge that pesticides increase your risk of lymphoma. And lymphoma is cancer specifically located in the lymph nodes. Is that correct? Yeah. So it is common knowledge. If you talk to to lymphoma specialists, like whether they believe Roundup specifically or not, I don't believe any lymphoma specialist, if they are honest and truthful, will say pesticides do not increase the risk of lymphoma. I think we were always being taught that. Um, yeah, lymphoma is a form of cancer that uh, usually involves the lymph glands, the immune system, and sometimes the bone marrow. Um, so the bone marrow is this uh, inside of the bone where it's like the factory that produces the red cells, white cells, platelets. And so it's, it's a disease that affects the immune system, the lymph glands, the bone marrow. Um, and there are so many types of it. It's not, it's not like, um, you know, it's interesting. So when you say the word lymphoma, I always told my patients, it's like saying there's a car. Well, every car... But every car is four tires and a piece of metal on top, right? But there are red cars, white cars, whatever. Then there are Japanese cars, German cars, American cars. Then you have also the specifics of the cars, the license plates of each car. So when you say lymphoma, as if you're saying cars, then you have to think the type of lymphoma and the details of lymphoma. And there are about 60 types of lymphoma right now that we know of. Wow. Interesting. Okay, so you started digging into this research that was presented to you by these lawyers defending these cancer patients, basically. And enough people had said, hey, I am developing the same sickness, and I believe it's attached to this exposure to glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup. But the Roundup exposure, I want to be really clear what kind this is, because something we talk about a lot on our show is real food and and proper, you know, farming techniques. And we're not even talking about glyphosate sprayed on food and then us eating the food. We're talking about um, the the application of Roundup in um, residential, your residential neighbor. or commercial settings. But we're talking about like the person spraying it having that kind of exposure. Is that correct? Yes, um, but you know, you, you, you're, um, for these particular lawsuits, it's about really spraying Roundup, whether it is residential use or commercial use uh, in your job, mm-hmm. and how uh, Roundup could actually um, be sprayed, uh, affects the skin, gets absorbed into the body, and it could exert its activities inside the body after it gets absorbed. Um, I think the food issue, though, is not something that we should, frankly, undermine. I love the fact that you tackle these things on your show. I think everybody um, should appreciate that because I did not have appreciation to that before. Mm -hmm. I started digging into it and I realized it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's literally everywhere. (laughs) You You can't escape it. So I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit. But for the for the specifics of the trials that I testified in, these were patients that were exposed to Roundup uh, via use of the, um, um, you know, spraying it uh, either for commercial use uh, or for residential use. 
Mm-hmm, killing weeds. I mean, I remember as a kid, uh, our church went on these little volunteer. We had like a week of service thing. And there was this one kid who was like, I'm the roundup kid. And he used to just carry the thing and just spray everywhere. And it was like this joke. It, it, you walk into your Lowe's, your Home Depot, totally. your Kroger. It's just right there on the shelf. Everyone's, I watch my neighbors spray it. It still like, is. Sadly, virtu- it still is. It's, it's so ubiquitous. And then that's not even covering the fact that we have genetically modified crops specifically designed to have to increase the application of Roundup because, and we'll get into that. So these three trials, I'm, it's just wild. So it's three trials. Let's, let's, well, give me some there are more trials. I tested the, uh, the book that we're talking about focuses on the first three trials because they yeah. were the biggest and the most uh, popularized. Mm-hmm. And the ones that really that set the stage to this large settlements that uh, Monsanto and Bayer had to pay and all of these things. So the trials, there are still ongoing litigation. There are some trials that occurred afterwards, but but the focus of the book was the first three trials that occurred, uh, the first one in 2018 and the two other ones were in 2019. Uh, yeah. So walk us through each one of those, because I know each case is a little different, but if you can give us kind of a high level view of who the plaintiffs were, what their exposure looked like, and then maybe how quickly or to the effect of their lymphoma before they kind of connected mm-hmm. it to the Roundup usage. Yeah, and uh, Liz, the second point is really interesting because what you're alluding to is what we call the latency period in medicine, which is the time from exposure to a compound that we think is hazardous until you develop the illness, right? Mm-hmm. And that that was a big contentious piece in these litigation trials mm-hmm. uh, because I don't believe there's an actual set number. Like you can't tell somebody two years is okay, three years is not, one year is fine, three, you can't. And we'll get into that. But the first, the first trial was Johnson against Monsanto. And Duane Johnson, and he goes by Lee Johnson, was a groundskeeper in California. And basically he sprayed uh, Ranger Pro, which is a form of, like it's Roundup, but just the brand is called Ranger Pro. The main ingredient, obviously, is glyphosate. And he sprayed this all over schoolyards. And he he basically would spray daily uh, all around the district from like Monday through Friday from 9 to 5 type of thing. I mean, he was spraying just daily. And he had several um, spilling incidents, um, sometimes with the, with what he was carrying. And he would sometimes the truck, I believe. I mean, I, you know, he had s- several of these. And he would wash off, but you know, again, he um, he started spraying in 2012, and he testified actually, as well as he um, gave some interviews, that when he took on that job, which he was very proud of, he um, he did a training session because it was mandated by the school that he do a training uh, module, like when you join any type of job, and in that training, they told him it's so safe you can drink it. Oh, wow. You can't make that up. So I'd like all of the Monsanto executives to drink it. If put your right. I mean, if you say you can drink it, show us. Like, just like do a commercial where you're drinking glyphosate. So that's what he said. And, uh, and this was uh, anyway. So he, he started spraying in 2012. And in 2014, he developed rashes all over his body. And it's not uncommon for the type of lymphoma that he developed, which is T-cell lymphoma, 
uh, or what we call uh, mycosis fungoides. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, physicians uh, struggle in making the diagnosis immediately. Eventually, he had several biopsies and he had the diagnosis and he was diagnosed with this T-cell lymphoma or mycosis fungoides. And then in the spring, in the fall of 2016, he had biopsies because the lesions were not responding. And these biopsies showed that the disease was transforming to a more aggressive type of a lymphoma, still T-cell lymphoma, but was transforming. And so he, he brought on the first lawsuit ever, and he was represented by the Miller firm. And as you could imagine, there was so much um, attention and press and Everybody was covering this because it was a big deal. And part of the reason it was a big deal, uh, if you remember, it was the time when Bayer was acquiring Monsanto. Mm -hmm. yeah. Bayer is like this huge company, obviously, known for aspirin. Uh, but basically, they were acquiring Monsanto for $63 billion. And uh, so this was happening in the background. And uh, so there was a lot of attention to what's going on there. And I think Bayer underestimated the impact of the litigation and the lawsuits. And they probably did not do as much due diligence as they should have, although they claimed that they did. But I reserve my opinion. And, uh, and uh, so it was lots of, uh, uh, again, it was, a very, it was all over the news. Um, um, and this was in the summer of 2018. Uh, that was the first trial. Uh, and it was a big one, and the verdict came out on August 10, 2018 at the time, literally around the time when the deal between Bayer and Monsanto was closing. And after that, Bayer share price, this, their stock price, went down by close to 70%. Oh, my gosh. So they lost so much of their market cap, and it's still very low. Um, so... You know, the economics of what Bayer has done um, were actually pretty interesting that one of the reporters on the Wall Street Journal, actually, I'm going to as I'm going to uh, re remember this because I don't want to slaughter it, but um, um, she labeled this um, as one of the worst. And I have this in the book, one of the worst um, um, uh, business thing in, in, in history or something like that. Um, it's it's very interesting. I mean, she she yeah, it's Ruth Bender, and um, she covered the trial and she covered the acquisition. So that was the first trial. That was the first trial with Johnson against. This was obviously industrial use, or because use in in the job was not really uh, residential use. So what happens when uh, they say, yes, we see a clear link, Monsanto, you lose. Basically, Monsanto's on the defense because Johnson was coming after them saying, you need to like own up to this, right? And then what happens? Is there a financial settlement? settlement? Are they paying for his cancer treatment? Like, part of me is like amazing that he won, but I'm also like, now what? He, he still has to yeah. live with these repercussions. Yeah. So there were, there were obviously usually the economic damages, the medical damages, and there are punitive damages. So punitive damages are these damages that the jury are could award the patient because it basically almost you're teaching the defense a lesson that hopefully you're you know, slapping their wrist so they don't really do this again. And the wrist usually responds to economics. Um, 
So the verdict was $289 million. That was the verdict, including a lot of punitive damages. But as you could imagine, uh, there was a lot of appeals, back, forth, all of these things. And eventually, um, the final thing was about $25 million. And I think, I don't know how much he took versus lawyers versus things like that. But uh, that was eventually for, for Johnson. Um, but yeah, I mean, so as a defense, you really don't have to prove anything, technically, right? I mean, hmm. you're innocent until proven guilty. Hmm. So the plaintiff, the lawyers must prove that the use of Ranger Pro, which is active ingredient glyphosate, was a substantially contributing factor in developing Mr. Johnson's lymphoma. It doesn't have to be the sole factor, by the way. It doesn't have to be the only factor. So some people could have a couple of factors, but it must be substantially contributing. Yeah. So, you know, if you think of a heart attack or heart disease, you know, somebody has, let's say, hypertension and smoking history, heavy smoking. You know that both of them increase the risk of developing heart disease. And, and you could be confident, you could say, well, I think smoking in this person substantially contributed to his developing heart attack. Obviously, hypertension also did, but you, so, so the same here. In this, and there are different laws. I think in the state of California, you should be able to say that the, this compound substantially increased the risk or doubled the risk of developing the disease. Mm -hmm. And in his case, it was two years. It was two years of heavy use. Right. Yeah. I mean, have you? And that's why you can't like this. What you asked me about, Liz, before this uh, latency period, like, you know, mm -hmm. um, it, we don't know. I mean, we don't know, but it is something that Monsanto obviously tried to leverage to their advantage by saying, well, it's only two years. OK, so I mean, two years, but the guy was spraying every single day. He had spilling. I mean, you can't really have a, this binary point like unless it's 10 years we ignore everybody who had less than you know it, it doesn't work like that but certainly it's something that they tried to use to their advantage in front of the jury uh, well and to me it seems like it would have the opposite play because i'm thinking yeah it only took him two years to develop like that's how toxic this level of exposure is keep in mind he's spraying five days a week mm -hmm. so you should be concerned whereas they're saying well it was a two-year time frame you know it really isn't long enough to mm -hmm. develop that type i'm guessing these are the kinds of things they're saying Absolutely. and i if i'm sitting on that jury which i would never be allowed to but if i am i'm thinking yeah that's concerning that that that's the time frame is that short. So fascinating because his is obviously a commercial and a lot of 99% of the folks listening to this show aren't spraying a glyphosate based herbicide five days a week. And if they are, I hope they're listening. But a lot of us are, are familiar with residential use. So I want to get into the other two cases too, because those are residential uses. And uh, I think about that every time I'm outside with my kids. So talk to us about uh, the subsequent cases. The second case that went to trial was Hardeman versus Monsanto. And this was in federal court. So what I learned through this litigation is that there are cases in state courts and cases in federal courts. So this was in federal court. And this was really interesting because this is the case that Monsanto decided to appeal all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. 
So this case, um, and it was a big one because there's before that case, there's something called the Daubert hearing. So the Daubert hearing is usually a hearing in front of the federal judge. It is not in state court and it's not in front of a jury. It is in front of the federal judge and basically both sides need to, pro to bring their witnesses, their expert witnesses, and they need to convince the judge that the methodology that was applied in their testimony was sound. So it's not really proving what their whether their conclusion is correct or not. What is important is, did you actually apply proper methodology to reach your conclusion? So for example, I tell you, you know, uh, Liz, why do you think this is bad? You say, well, I, I just think so. Well, that's not enough. You have, what, what, how did you reach the conclusion? So there was a Daubert hearing first for this trial in, um, in uh, February 2019. And then what was interesting about the Hardiman trial, so Hardiman, Edwin Hardiman, and by the way, just for your listeners, all of the information I'm providing is public. So I'm not really, none of this information is private. Once you go, what I've learned, once you go to court, unless the court, is, unless the court is closed, it's all out there. So, um, you know, all of all the information I'm seeing, you can just Google it and you'll find it. But basically, Edwin Hardiman utilized uh, Roundup for residential use. Um, and uh, for almost over two decades. Um, and then he developed uh, a lymph node in around his neck area. And subsequently, he was diagnosed with an aggressive form of lymphoma, which was different than the one that Lee Johnson had. And, um, you know, he went on to, to sue uh, Monsanto, and he was represented by the Wagstaff law firm, not the Miller firm, uh, Amy Wagstaff, Catherine Forgey, and others. And, um, and, and in, that, in that trial, the judge, the federal judge, Judge Shabria, decided to do something called bifurcate the trial. So what that means is the trial has two phases. Um, it's not... It's not one trial at the same time. You almost have to have like two trials in one. Mm -hmm. The first phase of the trial was you need to prove to the jury that Roundup is carcinogenic. So it is potentially carcinogenic. You need to prove that. And you need to prove that it caused cancer in Mr. Hardiman. That's mm -hmm. the first phase. The second phase is for punitive damages and what is you know the conduct of the company and is there any reason you know how much we can award so i testified in phase two of that trial but basically um you know um in that trial uh, again uh, mr hardiman won uh, and the verdict was about i believe 80 or 85 million dollars subsequently was actually reduced as you could imagine because of various appeals and Monsanto continued to appeal this. Um, and the reason they chose this one is because it was very, very important. It was a federal case. It was also the first case of what they call the bellwether cases. And by the way, for your listeners, I am not a lawyer, by the way. Mm. But I have to tell you, I learned so much about the legal system here. <laughs> I, I, I have to share with you a few of these nuggets I've learned, I'm telling you. but And they're not fun, but... Uh, but, you know, I, I'm pretending to be one when I mention this. But the reason I say bellwether cases is because both sides, both sides, Monsanto and the plaintiffs, 
must select three cases that they all agree on and they go to the judge and they say these are the three bellwether cases that we would like to try and the reason that's important because the outcome of these trials really dictates kind of like you know what is going to happen afterwards because hmm. if you win all three of them for example you know that's that's a given all of that so when monsanto lost this one they lost phase one and phase two all of these things and they already had lost the Johnson trial. Judge mm -hmm. Chabria, who is the federal judge who was supervising the entire litigation, he said, you know what? We're not going to do the other two bellwether cases. You need to go and start mediation. Because it was clear that there was something going on and the jury is just not seeing what Monsanto side. I'll tell you subsequently how Monsanto won some cases. So he demanded after the Hardeman case that they actually start mediation and start talking to each other and start maybe reaching a settlement or discussion, whatever it is. And Monsanto appealed that case all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court refused to hear that case. So, um, yeah, last year uh, this was, I mean, it, it went, it ended up being to, usually there's a process and I described that in the book how how these cases end up going to the, um, you know, there's a, um, um, yeah, bottom line is Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to listen to it. So it sounds like, it sounds like they reach a point where they're like, listen, the jury is not on your side in any of these cases. And you're going to have continued lawsuits filed against you because people are continuing to claim that you are part of the cause of their illness. You need to settle this outside of the court system. That's exactly that what happened which is fascinating you would think that immediately they would be like okay what are the proactive measures we can take can we put a label on the bottle can we can we scoot around this it's economics look i mean it's totally calculated economics because the minute you put a label you know that sales will go down because somebody is not going to buy it i mean I mean, it's, we already have examples of that. I mean, smoking at some point was totally fine. And, yeah. mm -hmm. and it just people just simply, you still can smoke, but you know the risk. And certainly, tobacco companies don't make their money in the U.S. market. I mean, you, they make their money in the Middle East, in China, in other locations. So, so they, they know, they're not stupid. They understand. I mean, the right thing to do is to put a label and say, hey, in some people, we, by the way, we never said it causes cancer in everybody. You know, nobody, I think it's an awful um, herbicide, personally, at this point, because it has a lot of other effects. But nobody has ever claimed that every lymphoma is caused by Roundup and that Roundup causes every lymphoma if you spray it. And but they continue to contend that this is safe. And um, and that's why um, these lawsuits continued. But this was the second one was very, very important because it was a federal lawsuit went all the way to uh, Monsanto, appealed it all the way up. And during that lawsuit, I made a decision. I'm going to write a book, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. I'll tell you the story if you want. But basically, that, that's that's after this one, I made a decision. I would write a book. Mm, yeah, we'd love to hear that story. So uh, in the Daubert hearing, uh, I was in, you know, on the stand and the, the lawyer from Monsanto, uh, he was questioning me in front of the judge and, you know, they have a playbook, but one of the issues playbook always discredit you and show how 
not credible you could be in front of the judge. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, Dr. Nabhan, if you're so convinced that Roundup is caused, it could cause non-Hodgkin lymphoma, I don't see you going around the world and around the country lecturing everybody and telling all students and everybody about this and your colleagues and your fellows and your residents and all of these things. And it was a valid question and he was correct because I was not aware that this is something I could do as an expert witness involved in active litigation that was ongoing. And I said, told them that I said, I didn't think I could do that now that I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm actively testifying uh, here. And he said, no, no, you can. I said, okay, thanks. I, I will then. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you know what, but the thing is to reach more people, I thought, I mean, although the book took a, a while to write, but I think um, to reach more people, you want to write something that appeals to everybody, not just physicians and lawyers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the uniqueness of this, because if you write something that is too heavy medically, mm -hmm. you're going to lose people. Too heavy legally, you're going to lose people. If you write something that is understandable for folks who do not have a medical degree or a law degree, then you get more people to really pay attention and understand what you're trying to say. So mm -hmm. um, that that's but that was the tipping point. Like you know what, screw you. I'm gonna write a book. Heck yeah, I, I love, love that. that because you're sitting in there that in that moment and you're just like, I didn't even know that was an option. And here you are. You're like, got my published book. You know, I'm going on these podcasts. Watch me tour. Well, right, right now in all trials, like I, I'm not testifying anymore. Um, I mean, we'll talk about that. But basically, in the last one that uh, I testified, they had a motion to exclude my book uh, from being mentioned to the jury. And it's, I mean, jury trials are very, 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 very interesting. So much strategy in these trials. And I don't think the jury sees everything, by the way. They don't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let, let's talk through, because there was a third case, right? Yeah. yeah. And then I have some questions around just, anyways, let's, 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 let's uh, I'd love to hear the story of the third case. Yeah. The, the third case is, a, is an elderly couple, Alva and Alberta, um, mm -hmm. and they lived together. They were married for 30 some years, uh, and they um, sprayed for three decades. And uh, Alberta developed a form of lymphoma that involved the brain only. It's called primary central nervous system lymphoma. And Alva developed uh, the same lymphoma, but outside the brain. And uh, they also sued Monsanto. They were in their um, mid-70s. And um, Monsanto obviously claimed, of course, that because they're older, it must be the age, which is, I think, um, is very short-sighted because we always try to find the reason behind an illness, whether you're old or young. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, uh, and then the 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 other thing pertaining to this is, <laughs> I I recall s saying that you know if you have two people that are living together, and they develop the same illness. Mm. You don't need to be a doctor to have the common sense of asking the question as to what is the common denominator. Yeah, that's, that's good. Like, honestly, I don't think you need a medical degree for that. I mean, if you, if you, if you go and if you go together to a restaurant and you eat and you come back with a, with an illness in your stomach, you're gonna ask Liz if she has the same thing. I mean, it's just normal. But, uh, you know, Monsanto used that statement thing. Well, Dr. Nabhan is only using common sense to reach his conclusions. 
I'm like, no, that's not true. And they appealed and, and it was a long story. But what's most unique about this is the verdict. For each one, $1 billion. This was huge. Wow. This was the jury was almost, I kind of sense they were like fed up. Like, they, you know what? We're going to give such a high verdict uh, because this will be a big uh, slap. Of course, this did not stay as $1 billion, continued to go through the uh, appeals and, and all of this is described in the book. But that was big. They Basically, it was a $2 billion uh, uh, verdict and um, uh, it's, it was... Uh, it was uh, huge. Um, Two billion. Yeah. So wait, what's your question? I've got so many questions. Okay. So so first first one, and these are easier questions because, anyways, um, a, an example or so so the first trial. This was Johnson, yeah. correct? Yeah. He was spraying. We kind of gave some examples. It sounds like uh, all seasons, like whether it was winter, summer, spring, and he was spraying. I think so. I think sometimes. You know, sometimes they try not to, like if there's a lot of rain and things like that, I, I, mean, I presume sometimes you, there are certain elements that you don't spray, but for him, he was spraying all along, year round, I believe. Super heavy usage, and so many people are not going to relate with that. Mm -hmm. um, however, definitely worth discussing and talking about. I am curious of the final two cases. I'm, I'm picturing usage and, and 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 i want you to correct me in what these cases looked like or at least what their usage amounts might have looked like to the best of your ability at least i'm imagining hey it's it's spring and summer and there's weeds in my driveway and or landscaping i maybe spray once twice a year i i mean is it more than that less than that like what did people use very like? yeah good that's very good question by the way i mean people use very and it's probably one of the most common questions people ask. I mean, am I going to get cancer because I sprayed once? And the answer is, we don't know. Probably not. I mean, if you just like, I mean, I don't, it's hard to, we don't know what is the minimum safest thing to actually uh, uh, use a compound that we believe it has some risk. It's, it's not mm -hmm. really clear. To your point, most people, when they use Roundup, they use it in their driveway, in their backyard, and their use varies. Some of them, they use it, you know, once a month, for example, for four months of the year. And and it's not, you know, maybe they spend an hour, depending how big they are, maybe not. It just totally depends. But I do think that folks, they don't always uh, appreciate how often they use it because it's um, they know it's safe. They believe it's safe. And they also um, don't wear protection. They could be in their shorts in the backyard and sandals and, you know, um, short sleeves and whatever. I mean, they just, I mean, they just, there's no reason. They don't have a reason to, to do anything different. So the level of exposure uh, varies because there's little appreciation to the safety or the, to the risk of the, of the thing. To answer your question as concise as I can, I don't think we know that the minimum, what is the minimum uh, safe thing. I can share with you some of what the literature has, has shown and just give you my other opinion. So there are a couple of studies that were published in the literature. One of them uh, suggested that if you have sprayed more than 10 days in your lifetime, you double the risk of developing non-Hodgkin lymphoma. 
Now remember, doubling the risk though, um, Joe, does not mean you're going to have it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you know, doubling the risk does not mean 100% you're going to get the disease. Mm-hmm. You just mm-hmm. increase your risk. I mean, if you get into your car and decide you're not going to wear a seatbelt, and God forbid you get in an accident, you are increasing the risk of having a lot of damage because you're not wearing a seatbelt, but you could possibly not have any issue. Like, I think, think we have to understand that you're increasing the risk does not mean you are guaranteed to have the illness. Mm-hmm. But in the folks who did develop the illness, we need to go back and look at how often they sprayed. So there is literature of 10 days in a lifetime. And there's another paper that showed that two days a year incre- double the, doubles the risk of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Now, two days a year does not mean you just chick, chick, two sprays. It's two days. I mean, you could probably spending like, you know, five hours a day and other five hours a day. That's, that's 10 hours and, and all of that. So um, th- this is what the literature is showing. Um, the other thing in terms of the minimum, because it's very important, and I don't think we know that, and, and, and think about anything else that could be possibly risky that we do in our lifetime. Um, let's talk alcohol and tobacco. So there is, actually, there is actually enough data about alcohol causing, increasing the risk of women developing breast cancer. Um, does this mean you can drink a glass of wine a week, um, two glasses of wine a week? Is it beer? Is it liquor? I mean, I, it, it's, but there is that it's published and it's not really clear. Even smoking, nobody in the world disputes the link between smoking and cancer. But let's say you have two cigarettes a month. I mean, are you going to get really cancer? I don't think we know. What we know is the way we should look at these things, in my opinion, as advocates for people, for patients, is that you know something is bad. A, try not to use it because we know it's bad and we don't know what that's one. If you must use it, you need to know the risk and you need to protect yourself. That's how I look at things because I got to be pragmatic, you know, so, you know, I've had patients who said, I understand it's bad for me. I'm going to smoke. Okay, but you understand you're an adult and you're making an informed decision. What people in America, they're being deprived from making an informed choice because mm-hmm. they are not aware of the risk because the company has refused to put a warning label on it. You cannot deprive people from choice. Yeah. You have to be able to, you're more than welcome to do any risky behavior that you want but you need to be aware of the positives and the negatives and then you do that Mm, i like that i think that's the piece too that on the other side for the folks who are like glyphosate is safe you guys don't know what you're talking about none of the regulatory agencies agree with each other um they they could say you know there's a lot of talk about alcohol online right now and how even just one or two glasses a week i know andrew huberman did a great podcast on it so a lot of people are like, well, listen, you're going to sit here and tell me that Roundup is, you know, increases your risk of cancer. Well, so does drinking your alcohol. So, you know, and they kind of just muddy the waters a little bit and make it seem like, well, anything's a risk. The piece, though, that I like that you just highlighted is that 
alcohol, at least we understand there's repercussions. We can actually feel when we've consumed too much of it. We can see how it's logically a neurotoxin or toxin to the body in, in some capacity. With something like glyphosate or Roundup that's sold everywhere, it's the most ubiquitous uh, weed killer used on the planet, I believe. Um, there's not the same cognitive awareness of its danger. And that's the piece where if Monsanto would have just said, hey, there is a risk here, they they probably would have you know won every case because they would have said, you know, we told you. And you chose to use it anyways and place the blame on the end consumer, which is kind of how capitalism is built, right? People need freedom of choice, but they need the information to be paired with that freedom of choice. So that's the piece where you have a company producing a product who is, in my opinion, just continually saying that those are the naysayers and those those guys are not accurate and they're still winning cases and there's still no label and it's still being sold for residential use even though it's supposed to be taken off the market i don't I will talk know. about the cases that they are winning because i think that's that's interesting you say but just to piggyback on what you're saying um just in terms of just some statistics this is according to the epa the environmental protection agency 280 million pounds of glyphosate are applied to an average of 298 million acres of cropland annually this is annually and when you look since the introduction of gmos the glyphosate use rose 15 fold globally and two-thirds of the volume of glyphosate applied in the u.s from 1974 to 2014 has been sprayed in the last 10 years so we're spraying more and more and more and you must ask yourself, is some of the things that we are noticing right now with intolerance, celiac disease, gut leak, all of these things, could that be related to it? I mean, I, I did not investigate that. I did not study that. That's not my area of expertise. But it certainly got me to think if it's everywhere, is there a reason we're seeing more of this? But yeah, I mean, you have, you, you must... They, to, I, I don't think... The people that will de defend glyphosate today, I don't think they're going to stop defending it. There are people that will defend it to the core because it's a very good weed killer. It just, yeah. I mean, it does the job right, yeah. but not without cost, in my opinion. I'm curious about the type of exposure. So we saw with um, our, our first kind of commercial usage, hey, maybe it spilled on me at one point. You know, people told me I could drink it. I don't. I don't hear that he tried that, right? No. But like, we're told that that you know, hey, it, it can, I'm assuming absorption through the skin, yeah, and then inhalation. Like, is that a thing that mm -hmm. can that can potentially happen? What do we know about kinds of exposure? Like, if we're going to go out and protect ourselves, I guess is the question that I'm asking. Are we to wear wear full kind of like suits? Should we be wearing gloves, mask? What what, what would uh, what kind of exposures should we be looking out for? Yeah. Um, look, the, the most, the most, the most obvious way, and the way that we actually know how it's being used is on, you know, cropland and everywhere that you actually. Uh, we just talked about about spraying it, and um, uh, and that actually comes to the skin, and it could be absorbed through the skin and goes and cause some cellular damage in various organs. That's really the most common way that uh, folks get um, exposure. To glyphosate, and um, so uh, in my opinion, 
if someone is going to spray Roundup, they need to minimize the use and the exposure as much as possible. And if they must use it, which I don't recommend, then they have to wear gloves and uh, wear um, you know shoes and just make sure there's no skin that is um, that is going to um, uh, be exposed to it because you could be spraying and it's very windy outside and uh, it mm. comes on your face. I mean, that could happen. Now, the other one that is really important is the food, right? Mm -hmm. Because now with the GMOs, you're actually spraying. And, and I think, Liz, you mentioned that earlier when we started, you're spraying it on corn, on soybean, on everywhere and your harvest. And so it's really everywhere that we may be eating. Um, that, that, you know, that was not the topic of the trials, but certainly, in my opinion, it's a topic for us as advocates to think through. What does that actually mean? Um, because all of this way of industrializing agriculture has taken out the usual farming, the, the family farming and the, the organic way of developing things, uh, you know, it took over. So that's really why probably we're seeing more uh, ailments that we used to, in my opinion. Um, but this was not the subject of the trials. Uh, and it is, again, the subject of the trials, mainly specifically for lymphoma and uh, mainly for folks who are spraying and getting skin exposure. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if it's because those two are closer linked and I wonder if the reason, because it, it bothers me that we've never kind of as like a people been able to say like, listen, this seems crazy that we're spraying it on our food. Like mm -hmm. other countries don't allow this. Why are we poisoning our kids and our public school systems um, with the information that Zen Honeycutt did her research? Or why are we now 80, what, 80% 80 of Americans tested positive for glyphosate in their urine? Why are we dealing with this? I would I would imagine that Monsanto and others producing similar chemical compounds would be able to say that's way too far up the chain to, to ever say, you know, that this is causing a number of symptoms. You know, I for me, I, I just think they're able to kind of slip out of that guilty. Do you know what I'm saying? Because mm -hmm. it's it's a, if it's everywhere and it's in the food, um, I just think it's such a complex issue. It'd be very hard to win the case. I think, I think that if I think the, it's a big opportunity for someone to come and provide an alternative because yes. there are many people who defend Monsanto and, and Roundup that don't work for Monsanto or, I mean, they, they're just actual yeah. farmers. I mean, you know that, I mean, you know, you, <coughs> there are folks who, just defend it and they say it's great and I love using it and, and I'm going to use it and and you go through these discussions and they're just not going to believe you and these are not folks that are paid or work for Monsanto. Right. They just happen to really believe in Roundup and in glyphosate. Now if you bring them an alternative and you say well listen this is let, try this or do something different this is an alternative that actually is safer and better and does not have a toxic compound i bet you they'll be willing to try that yeah um and i think i think that that it's an opportunity for entrepreneurs for people who are interested in that i believe there's actually a huge market for this mm -hmm. um uh, and the other thing i would say is at some point 
50 years ago, maybe, or 60 years ago, smoking was considered safe. We had ads on TV that were saying smoking was safe, right? I mean, and nobody thought you could actually change how tobacco manufacturers will will uh, do things or change things. And here we are. So sometimes things do change. They take a long time. But I'm not going to lie. I, I have been very disappointed, very frustrated. And I think the fact that Monsanto has won several cases after these three uh, uh, is a testament to this. But I think they have become very strategic. Mm-hmm. That's why they won them, some of these cases. We'll talk about that. But that's they won. It's not because they're right. Because in the court of law, is the law strategy and strategy trumps facts sometimes and i said that exactly in the book frankly the way i look at things is very simple if you had to pay somebody over 11 billion dollars you're guilty whether you win 10 other cases you had to pay that much it's one of the largest product liability settlement in the u.s history so you can't be that innocent if you had to pay that much Mm-hmm. I love that. I love I'm, that I'm curious, right before we get into, I, I, I'm dying to hear about cases that Monsanto has won. Uh, um, a few questions I have about the cases that you were in before, you, before we get there. Uh, to win a case, we have to prove the defense guilty, right? That's, that's kind of, the, we said that at the beginning, that makes sense. And they're you know, guilty until proven, or they're innocent until proven otherwise. What pivotal evidence or how did we achieve this? Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, how did we show a link from the usage of glyphosate and or Roundup or uh, what was it, Ranger Pro mm-hmm. to yeah. developing lymphoma? So it all started in, um, in, 25, in 2015. In 2015, uh, IARC, which is a, a subdivision of the WHO, the World Health Organization, IARC stands for the International Agency of Research on Cancer. So it's a subdivision of the World Health Organization. And IARC usually reviews various compounds that people are exposed to and they're used in the environment or in food or whatever. And they review these to look at their link to cancer in general. And they usually select the compounds that they review pretty carefully. So they select things that are uh, heavily used, for example. And there's maybe some preliminary evidence and things of that nature. And what they do is they usually compile a panel of experts that uh, in toxicology, in cancer, in all of these disciplines... And these folks are not paid, by the way. They just volunteer their time. They get paid just for lodging and for for their hotel stay and for their travel. And they ask them to review the evidence. And usually they review the published literature. So they reviewed whatever is published and they come up with a conclusion. So in March 2015, this panel convened in Lyon, France, and uh, they were reviewing glyphosate. And they reviewed basically three prongs because to your point, Joe, you have to, you know, how did you even get there? So what they usually review, they review animal studies. Are there published animal studies to support that animals who are exposed to glyphosate might develop tumors or cancers? Mm-hmm. They, le- they review mechanistic studies. So are there any data or papers that talk about the potential mechanisms by which glyphosate could make the cell transform into a cancer cell? And then they review human studies. 
the epidemiologic studies which are out there, and then they come up with a conclusion. So they reviewed animal studies, and conclusively they concluded there are enough animal studies to show that glyphosate induces tumors. Some of these tumors are cancerous in animals. They reviewed mechanistic studies, and they showed lots of papers that talk about the mechanisms, how glyphosate could break the DNA, uh, impair the repair mechanism of the cells, uh, how it could actually break the, break the chromosomes, um, and uh, it causes oxidative stress. Uh, I'm pretty sure your audience and your listeners know about free radicals, and that's why a lot of us sometimes take antioxidants, because they actually could hopefully help make us a little bit healthier, uh, because oxidative stress is bad for you, because it just, so glyphosate does that. And then they reviewed the human studies, which are the epidemiologic studies, and they found some studies that are pretty good, linking glyphosate to uh, cancer, uh, and some that were not that good. They said, well, it's probably not linked. So there were like, you know, there's some studies positive and some studies negative. So they put all of this together because you cannot take just one piece of the puzzle. If you have a big puzzle, you have to put, put all of them together. They put all of this together and they said, you know what? <clears throat> it is a probable human carcinogen. They did not say it's for sure a human carcinogen. There's like five categories. It's a definitive human carcinogen, probable human carcinogen, possible human carcinogen, and so on. So it was category 2A which is a probable human carcinogen. So that's how they really came up to the conclusion. So basically what the IARC or WHO said, that this compound is probable human carcinogen. It does not mean that in this particular patient it did. So when the trials came on, when the trials started, my role was, can I really prove to the jury that in this particular patient, in this particular patient, the reason this patient developed the non-Hodgkin lymphoma was because of the use of Roundup. And the way I did that, uh, as what we call a case-specific testifying expert, is you look at all of the risk factors. You say, okay, these are the risk factors that I know of that increase the risk of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. You list all of them. Let's say 10, whatever they are. And then you do process of elimination. Which ones apply to this patient? Mm. So Roundup and pesticides were part of this, this list that I compiled. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. Monsanto argued is you can't put it in that list because it's very safe. So it should not even make it to the list. And what I said, we have to put it on the list because it is a risk factor. And let's see if it applies to this particular patient. So, you know, some of the risk factors, just for your audience, you know, certain viruses associated with non-Hodgkin lymphoma, certain bacteria associated mm -hmm. with non-Hodgkin lymphoma, uh, low immune system, immunosuppression, some autoimmune diseases, these are things linked to it. So you start putting all of these on and you look at which one of these apply to this particular patient to reach that conclusion. Of course, there's a playbook that opposes that from Monsanto, which we can go to, but that's at least how, hopefully this explains how we got to these trials and how we proved that. That totally makes sense. So that's what we're good. doing is we're looking at, as an expert, 
in lymphoma, which you are, you said, hey, I've been testing this and researching this and treating this for you know X amount of years. And here's the things that through my studies and my research and my practice, I have identified are probable, right? They're that, like that second tier. It's not, it's not, it's not the 100%. Maybe this is 75% or whatever probable, probable means, right? I'm just trying to articulate this in my brain here. And all this list of things, and because of this study that came through the IARC and or WHO, the World Health Organization, mm-hmm. that that kind of validates it being on the list mm-hmm. beyond just your opinion. Yeah. Right. And so this study of the WHO plus your opinion, which is valid and, and should be taken you know, seriously, yes. goes on this list. Yeah. And when you look at this list and these particular cases, the way that you can you know, prove or make a reasonable case towards the belief of this being the probable cause is by saying all of these other potential threats were not present. Mm-hmm. And with this one being the sole threat and or the most exposure, right? If, if, if there's a minor case of something and this seems higher. So in the, in the case of Johnson, who is spraying this five days a week, five days a week, yeah. Hey, this exposure versus some other, these other potential risk factors, risk, risk factors are so much lower. Totally. Uh, wow. So, okay. That, that totally makes sense. So um, how are they with this data being available and this, I'm going to call this, this playbook that you've kind of presented on how you can make a good case against the, you know, Monsanto defense, right? How is Monsanto winning cases? Yeah, how are they winning? So, so before before we go into how they're winning, um, I think it's fair to say what is their playbook, right? Totally. Because yeah. you know, I mean, this is this is what we what we usually come up with is explaining the cases based on the risk factors for this particular individual. But Monsanto has three ways of how they actually um, how they actually defend the cases. The first one is how can I make the jury discredit the witness? How can I really find ways where I make that witness not credible? Mm-hmm. And they, they have various ways of doing this, including, you know, trying to make that, you know, you, you're doing this because you're getting paid because you're, you're because, you know, your, your opinion is being bought. So you're, you're getting paid a lot of money. So it must be this is why you have your opinion. Ignoring the fact that I've never done that before, it's not like I do this for a living in terms of being an expert witness. And I've said many times that I actually learned about this after the fact and I started studying it. The other way of the the second top part of the playbook, which is really very, very important, is the EPA, the EPA, the EPA. Mm. Monsanto says, and if you know, if you were Monsanto, you would absolutely do that. The Environmental Protection Agency of the United States of America has said glyphosate is safe and it does not cause cancer. Who are you? Who are you to come and tell me that it's not? Do you know better than the EPA? Are you smarter than the thousands of people in the EPA? But look, put yourself in their shoes. Of course, you're going to say that, right? And you've got the EPA, the largest uh, governmental agency in the country that is supposedly helping us defend the protect ourselves from the environment as if, you know, they've never got it wrong. But that's what they actually do. So it's the EPA, EPA, EPA. And the third thing they usually use, um, which is smart, I think, but it misses the point because, you know, you could 
easily you know uh, you know counter this but they use it they say well look a lot of lymphoma were are happening in people who've never been who've never sprayed mm -hmm. roundup so really it's bad luck i call it the bad luck theory so basically what they say cancer happens because of bad luck because the cells Basically, as they multiply, they have some errors in multiplication, and then they develop cancer. So, you know, what that means, if anytime somebody has a cancer and they go to the oncologist, the oncologist say, bad luck. Now, sometimes it is bad luck, by the way, but this does not mean it's bad luck all the time. It mm. just means in we must we owe it to our patients to try to investigate why something happened you know the most common question i've ever been asked with every patient i cared for and i took care of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people is why did i get that mm. people want to know sometimes i had no answers and sometimes i did but if you have god forbid a problem and you go see the doctor don't it's common that we ask, I mean, why did I have it? Are my children and family at risk? And what are we going to do about it? And what's the prognosis? These are the fourth of common questions. Yeah. But one of them is always why. Yeah. Uh, but this is the playbook of Monsanto. Uh, and then we can go into the trials, how they're winning, <laughs> because I think it's all strategy. I, I kind of want to get into the weeds a little bit because... I don't remember where I came across this and it might have been Dr. Zach Bush or something years and years ago. But I remember them kind of doing this GMOs revealed thing and they were talking about one of the ways that glyphosate was basically approved and put on the market and proven that it has no ill effect on human beings is because it interacts with this thing called the shikimate pathway. And human DNA cells don't have a shikimate pathway, so we got to be good. But the piece that they clearly missed 10, 12 years ago, whenever they were coming to this conclusion, was that what are the estimates now? We're nine parts bacterial DNA to our one part human DNA. We've got microbes inside of us that are communicating and have function. And so when you say something has impact on that type of cell, how can it not also impact the human being and the host? So... Did this ever come up in the trials as one of the mechanistic ways that glyphosate can impact human health? Um, or can we, can we underline one of the ways that this is actually impacting folks? Because this is what I'm interested in. Yeah, it did not really come in trials. I think, I think some, um, there are a couple of tox toxicologists who testified. They talked about how glyphosate works and how Roundup is composed of glyphosate, surfactants, and water, and additional uh, chemicals in there. They talked about how surfactants increase the absorption and makes glyphosate stick to the actual soil or to the actual weeds and, and kill the weeds. But at the same time, you actually, this leads to the absorption through the skin in the human body. Um, you're right, though. I mean, the way glyphosate works, it does actually inhibit this, um, you know, particular uh, enzyme pathway in plants and uh, I think that's really why you know what they did is they actually try to do the GMOs right you actually start making the um, the uh, the you, you 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 make sure that the uh, seeds don't have the enzyme that the actual 
glyphosate goes after, so they become resistant to glyphosate, and that's really where Roundup Ready seeds became available, and suddenly glyphosate use went up north because now you can use it safely without causing any problems. I think you bring up, bring up though, uh, uh, a good point, and, and Zach is great. He actually has done a lot of work with this. I need to have him on my podcast very soon, but um, he... Um, Yes, I think the way it were for the human body, it did not really come up. I think I think that um, it's not always clear to us 100% how a particular compound causes the uh, problem. Um, mm. Like I said, the theory is that it breaks the DNA, breaks the chromosomes, oxidative stress, all of these things. How it does that, I believe today, is by uh, absorb, being absorbed through the skin and maybe to a less extent uh, uh, through diet and, and through food and inhalation type of thing. Um, uh, I don't know. It, uh, it's hard for me to know how much of this pertaining to what you just described, you know, whether because we have a lot of microbes uh, inside our body and the enzymatic pathway. Um, I don't have a good answer to that. Mm. Interesting. Um, so there, we talked about their playbook and I want to get into some of the other methods that they're using to win the subsequent cases Yeah. because it seems wild that they could lose some totally. and still come out. Yeah. So Monsanto became much smarter. I mean, they lost three cases, big cases. The Supreme Court refused to hear them. They've lost every single appeal for these three cases. And they, as you know, I mean, they, you know, the settlement was over $11 billion. Um, so that's a lot of money. And economically, by the way, they're paying a lot for legal fees and lawyers and they've lost their market cap. So I think economically, it's very hard to believe they're very happy, Bayer or Monsanto. I mean, yeah. So but what 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 you realize, at least what I realize is two things when it comes to uh, the legal system. One, it's obviously all about the jury. I mean, ultimately, in these cases, you, you need to convince the jury with what you are actually um, um, claiming. And so Monsanto is willing to take trials to court or cases to court if they think that the jury pool in that particular city or this particular state is in their favor. An example of that is St. Louis. So St. Louis is where the headquarters of Monsanto were, <laughs> right? They've employed thousands and thousands of people. So people, they have a soft spot for Monsanto. They've, they've employed their families, their relatives. They've worked, I mean, it's just the way it is. I mean, you've worked for this company, your neighbor worked, uh, they, whatever it is. So... For St. Louis, they will always take cases to court, in my opinion. There's actually St. Louis County and St. Louis City. And lawyers are very smart with this, both sides. They know which particular um, jurisdiction is more in favor of the plaintiff versus in more in favor of the uh, defense. So they actually do that. The other thing that happened is the plaintiff lawyers on the other side, 
there, you know, a lot of lawyers would want to take any case out there because they became a little bit less selective in which cases they take. So suddenly, like I told you, not everybody with lymphoma, this happened because of Roundup and vice versa. But from the plaintiff side, they, because they think, well, maybe it's just a quick money. I'll just do this and they'll settle and I'll make money and move on. So they will take any case. And I remember getting called for a case that somebody was asking me. I said, no, I don't think in this particular patient, this was because of Roundup. Uh, and I, you know, I declined taking that case and that case was taken and they lost. So suddenly, you know, the one side will take anything because they think they make it a quick win and a quick buck. Exactly. And that is the problem with our legal system because now you take yeah. everything, right? And then Monsanto became smarter. They settled everything, and but they kept few cases out there where they knew the chances of winning are much higher mm. because of the jurisdiction, because of the location. And now they can say, hey, we, they won seven cases after these three, by the way. Seven cases after this. But what people forget is that they settled over a hundred thousand cases. But from a PR perspective, remember from a PR, if you want to put your marketing hat on, you'll just talk about the cases you won. You're not yeah. going to say I had to settle for $11 billion and people forget <laughs> these things. They just remember that they actually won cases. But the reason they are winning, in my opinion, is number one, they became very selective which cases they take to court. So they will not go to court ever in the state of California, ever, because yeah. they've lost three cases there. They just will not. Uh, but in St. Louis, I think it's 50-50. They will look at the case and they probably go there because they know that the people, um, that the people are going to be more sympathetic to them, frankly. And because the other side... The other side will take cases without uh, proper preparation. Uh, they got a little bit too greedy and they say, hey, you know, we'll just take this case. And if they settle, I make like, quick money. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We're going to look at every case separately. Yeah. Uh, so that's, in my opinion, why it's happening. And also the EPA has not changed position. I mean, nothing really has changed. Why? Why hasn't the EPA changed their position? You know, it's actually pretty interesting. Uh, I don't know. It's uh, I'm frustrated with two things, honestly. I um, I never I never went into this with the idea that this is something I'm doing for any financial gain. Frankly, if I really want to do it for financial gain, Liz and Joe, I would still do it. I mean, I I get called all the time, but I feel I've done what I could to help. Mm -hmm. I've testified in cases. I've written a book done all of this, I'm not really sure how much I can add at this point. But I'm frustrated with two things. One is after all of this, there is no warning label. And I can go to Home Depot and buy it right now. Yeah. Now, Bayer came up with a press release in 2022 promising that they will pull it off the shelves, by the way, in 2023 yep. for residential use. You, you know that. Uh, they yeah. said, well, but, and they said it's going to be allowed only for farmers and industrial folks, but it's still out there. And I don't think there's a pressure on them to pull it out. So it's still there. I'm pressed with this. And the second thing is the EPA. Look, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you know, in the book, I detail what looks like s smoking gun that maybe there's a lot of lobbying that happens in Washington and with government agencies. I mean, 
This is not unique, honestly, to Monsanto, and I don't have any solid evidence how much they're lobbying on all that stuff, but it's hard to believe that they're not. I mean, just the way it mm. is. So I, I don't know. I don't know why it's not. Uh, there was a court order in the summer of 2022 asking the EPA to review the evidence of their revised position on glyphosate because the circuit court, the Ninth Circuit Court, said that they did not do the due diligence and they should apply more rigor in the way they evaluate glyphosate. And they need to issue a new opinion. That was almost a year ago and nothing has happened. So um, I'm pretty upset. So... This is a side little story, but when that news broke that the Ninth Circuit, whatever, asked the EPA to reconsider their stance, basically, <clears throat> my dad, who uh, I my family for a long time was like, you and Joey are a little bit extreme, whatever, whatever. <laughs> and they started as we had a podcast and we started, you know, growing our community started to like agree and ask more questions and glyphosate is an issue that my dad particularly has taken a lot of interest in and so he actually wrote an article and submitted it to the local paper and it got published all about how listen like the courts are unsettled glyphosate is not necessarily safe and i'll never forget he had someone who took a an index card and wrote on it and said you know mr dobmeyer thank you for telling us about the dangers of glyphosate and they had somehow found my dad's address and mailed it to him and just that one article in the local like cincinnati newspaper had people for the first time in their lives probably realizing that there's more to the story and so i think to your point how to make an impact you writing this book you coming on podcasts you like preaching and teaching about this is exactly what you're supposed to be doing but i think you need to cascade it like everybody has to every one person has to tell somebody and i think we need to exert pressure i mean look i'm looking here the article this came this uh, this is an article from Court News Service on July 29, 2021, so almost two years. And the, ta- and the first thing it's saying, Monsanto's parent company announced it will remove glyphosate-based products from retail store shelves by 2023 to prevent future litigation claims related to the chemical ingredient. And, you know, I think we are in 2023. So, yes, I mean, we have to, I mean, it does get frustrating at times, to be honest. I mean, I think, like, I have a couple of articles, I think I'm probably going to submit them somewhere. But I, I just, um, you know, I mean, it's hard to know what else we could do. I think we need to ask questions and we need to hold our governmental agencies accountable. Yes. Um, and I think we need to demand better from them because uh, there's probably a lot of other compounds out there as you know there's like lots thing with paraquat paraquat is a big pesticide i mean you can research it and look at and it's linked to parkinson's disease wow you are going to be flabbergasted by the data on paraquat and parkinson's disease you know so that's 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 a weekend uh, read on this it's not going to be pleasant though well, that was one of our questions. We put up a question box and asked our audience, you know, what questions do you have? And they were, 
because this impending kind of removal off the market for residential use, everyone's kind of asking, okay, well, great. Are they just going to reformulate Roundup and then put it out with something? Is there going to be an alternative to glyphosate that's going to be worse or even just comparable? Because there's glyphosate gets a lot of the attention, yeah. but there's other stuff that's being used residentially and commercially that's harming the environment, the human body, our waterways, everything. And so... I don't know how we keep tabs on all of that, but there are other players here in the game. Uh, yes, uh, there is. I'm going to probably shock you with this statistic. I'm going to read this for you. A billion, billion, billion pounds of conventional pesticide are used each year in the United States to control weeds, insects, and other pests. Hundreds okay. of millions are used annually in U.S. agriculture. So, so to your point, you know, once you talk about the pesticide industry, um, is is a big uh, is a big issue. It's probably beyond this. And um, you know, you know, I mean, DDT was used and was pulled from the market. And you know, I think DDT. We all know who use who manufactures DDT. Monsanto. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was uh, used. I don't, think, I don't think I've ever had anything that is actually uh, pretty good. But um, it's a broader question, like what is gonna, what's going to be replaced with, right? My hope is that there is a safer product. My hope is whatever the replacement is would be something that is properly tested, properly uh, done. Uh, you know, in the book, I detail the original toxicology studies that Monsanto uh, did were outsourced to a lab called IBT Labs. And if your listeners would Google IBT Labs, they will find out, which I detailed also in the book, that IBT Labs uh, was found to be a fraudulent lab. Mm -hmm. They actually fudged and made up data. And the owners and of the IBT Labs were actually um, prosecuted and, uh, in the early 80s because this was in the late 70s. So Roundup was commercially used in 1974 and the EPA at the time were just starting. They were not really heavily resourced. They were a small agency and they were, you know, the studies that were, they were reviewing were not actually convincing. They actually, the original classification of the EPA to glyphosate was it's actually possibly carcinogenic, by the way. And then, yeah, yeah, the original, and, and in the book, I have like the first letter from the EPA showing it's carcinogenic. It's literally, it's public. You know, everything in the book is public. I just put it all together so people just yeah. have it as a resource. So that's the first one. And then several years later, the EPA changed position. They stopped demanding Monsanto to submit additional studies. And they um, changed their position without any new data. They just suddenly became completely safe. Hmm. Magic. wonder how that happened. I'm going to guess it has some sort of financial gain for someone. I mean, financial gain for someone. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to know, honestly, what happens behind closed doors, right? I mean, it is. We, we don't know. We, we, who, who the heck knows? But I think ultimately we're all interested in products that are safe to the public. Yeah. I don't care who makes money and how much they make money. What I care about is if you're going to make money, don't harm people. Yes. Totally. Uh, so quickly, is there state countries or areas that glyphosate is illegal or banned? Is that a thing? 
Yeah, I believe, I mean, I, I mean, I saw a lot of, there are certain areas in Europe that is banned. I believe in Mexico they were talking about, I mean, there's a lot of uh, places that they are banning it. But what's probably unique about uh, this is the one thing I will say is the, um, the, um, the actual uh, uh, surfactant that is being used in uh, Roundup here is uh, uh, different so uh, than the one in Europe. Um, so the Roundup that Roundup here, the surfactant that is used is called POEA. So you've got POEA, glyphosate, and water. So POEA is the surfactant, which is really this kind of materials that help to uh, maximize the absorption and the effectiveness of uh, glyphosate. And uh, it is actually the POEA that we have it in here is banned in the European Union. So, okay. so the surfactant that is an essential component of Roundup in the US is different than the surfactant that is in Europe. It makes you wonder why. I mean, we must ask questions, right? It's a fair question. Fair why question. is the surfactant here banned in the European Union? Why can't we use the same surfactant there, for example? Yeah. So, I, I, you know, there are a lot of questions, but ultimately, I don't know how we demand answers. I mean, they, they're not, you know, I mean, I think we've, you know, in the court, in the courtroom, what I learned is that the jury does not see all the evidence. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever uh, served in a jury, actually. I mean, I think we've all had like jury duty, but I've never served as a juror. But both sides spend so much energy and time and effort convincing the judge what the jury should see and what they shouldn't see. Hmm. So the Monsanto says you should not admit this information as evidence. And the plaintiff says we should admit this into evidence. And they butt head and then the judge has to decide what the jury is allowed to see as evidence because the jury must render their opinion based on the evidence and if you cannot admit something as an evidence you can't use that and silly me the naive citizen in me i thought as a juror i should see everything so i could make a a verdict but apparently not i actually did not know that i mean you i, I had no idea but you don't see everything you see what the judge allows you to see and both sides, I mean, the plaintiff, they work very hard to admit certain things into evidence that will help their case. And Monsanto, they want to decline some of these that will hurt their case. I mean, that's why I always said in the book, strategy trumps facts in the courtroom. I genuinely believe that. I think facts are very important. But if you're strategic, yeah. if you know how to pick the jury, you know which trial to take to court, what's district, and you know what you can prevent the jury from seeing, what you allow them to see, you position yourself at the highest opportunity of success. Mm. I believe Monsanto has done a great job in doing that in the last trials, and they took advantage of where the trial location is, who the judge is, who are the jury, what evidence can they allow, and, and things of that nature. And, and they took advantage also of some of the ill preparation of the plaintiffs that were not the plaintiffs I worked with. They were different plaintiffs. Uh, I did testify in the last one in St. Louis, which we lost. So the last one was Gordon versus Monsanto, the one I testified in. It was not in the book because the book came out before. This was in St. Louis, by the way. 
And my role in the testimony was very simple, was just simply to talk about the treatment and prognosis. I was not asked to elaborate on the causation. They brought Dr. Dennis Weisenberger for this. So the, 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 the lawyers asked me, they just wanted me to talk about the disease itself, the prognosis, the treatment, all of these things, and what Mrs. Gordon, Ms. Gordon went, went through, which I did. And this was in St. Louis, in a very, very, very favorable district for Monsanto. There were 12 jurors, and they ruled in favor of Monsanto 9-3. And I can tell you that the fact that the three of the jurors said that Monsanto was guilty was huge, because it's a very, very favorable to Monsanto. And also, the judge did not allow a lot of things into evidence. I mean... Mm. Lots of motions went in favor of Monsanto. So we'll see what happens there if it gets appealed or not. But uh, at the end of the day, in my opinion, they are guilty when you had to pay that much money to settle these cases and to let them go away. I mean, their all-time record is what, like seven out of 100,000? Is what you were saying with all the cases? Over 100,000, I mean, They settled yeah. over 100,000 cases. It's a losing record. So I mean, and I mean that that's, quantifiably they're losing. <laughs> I mean, what what's I mean, why would you pay that much money unless you really want things to go away? And so if you win a couple of cases, it's a good PR. I mean, this is very smart uh, PR, right? I mean, they come in and say, hey, we won all of these cases, so the science is not settled. Um, but in my opinion, uh, the reason you're winning, you have to look behind the curtain and see why this is happening. This has been very eye-opening, I, I feel, and I hope for the audience listening. Um, my final question to you is, how does this impact how you live your daily life? Are you making choices around food and lifestyle with this knowledge in mind, and how are you applying that? I, um, I try my best to consume organic food when I can. Uh, I think this is really important. I, I, I would love for the you know small... Uh, business of farming and the family uh, uh, based uh, this is this is big this is this is something that is really uh, important if we can uh, and I would love that to actually become more mainstream than the industrialized way of of this what was labeled as the green revolution which was anything but green yeah. Um, yeah. that I would like to see coming back I honestly think there's a lot of appetite for this yeah. I think, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and people who are who know about these things, who are able to actually come to market with these things and, and help people are going to be um, there. There's a huge hunger for it and a huge uh, market for this. Uh, so the only thing I could do is really uh, consume organic food uh, when I can and uh, and uh, and educate people. I mean, I, yeah. I do my best. I, I think. Um, Hopefully, the uh, the book will 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 get people to be more aware and just understanding, and uh, and then uh, you know um, we need to all put our heads together and figure out how can we let more people aware. But ultimately, I really believe you need to give them um, a replacement of something, and that's mm -hmm. where I think the organic and the small businesses of uh, farming that is really homegrown, this is going to make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you. Any final questions from you, Joe? This book, where can people find it? 
uh, everywhere. Um, I, I learned that Amazon is the biggest book distributor, apparently. 90% of books in the U.S. are bought by from Amazon, so it is on Amazon. It's called Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. They can go to, um, you know, Barnes & Noble or through my publisher, Johns Hopkins University Press. Um, I have a website, uh, www.shadinabhan.com, and I have links there to Amazon or Barnes & Noble if they want to buy it from there, and uh, uh, they can check that out. And I did do a couple of podcasts on this, uh, on my own podcast, Healthcare Unfiltered. Love that. Right on. Go get that book. Go check out his podcast. and. Uh, chatting up, that was your doctor Nevin. No, Thank no, Shadi, so please. We don't here. do formalities here. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I felt like I just listened that whole time, and I loved it. So thank you so much for being here. I really Looking forward to really seeing you around it. for sure. Yeah, uh, I, so I looked at uh, what you're doing as well, and you're doing amazing work. So I, uh, um, you know, do everything that I mean. It's it's amazing what you what you what you're uh, what you're doing. So. Congrats you. on your uh, achievements and your accomplishments. And uh, thank you for spreading the word. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. We're trying to do the same thing. Spread the word, man. Yeah. Have a great rest thank of your you day. Thank you so much. And with that, Dr. Navan has left the virtual chat. I have to call him doctor. I do too. It's like a respect thing for me. He's Dr. Chatty, Dr. Way Nabhan. too accomplished and way too smart for me, I feel like, not to call him. I mean, that. he's so sweet. He would never ask that of you, but I just, I'm, I have so much respect for his work. I also grew up and sometimes still make like my friends' parents, like Mr. You know, so and so. Oh, yeah. I don't, I'm not a first namer. Like, I'm in my 30s and I'll call people Mr. <laughs> sometimes. And I'll be like, same, same. Um, big takeaway for you. Oh, my gosh. I, th there are some episodes where, and this is one of those where I just feel like my involvement is more of just a spectator. Mm -hmm. And that's okay because I feel like I'm, well, this whole journey in this podcast that we've been doing and the education that we're sharing oftentimes isn't stuff that we have in our brains. And this would be an example of bringing on an expert that is, this is what they do. He is a cancer, lymphoma cancer doctor. Like yeah. this, is, this is his life. Yeah. And learning from someone like that about a topic like this gives me more information that I can use to help direct my life. Yeah. And so I'm definitely taking the the cases that he was that he was a part of. I, for me, being a case and winning, that's good to know. But like how? Yeah. So so as he answered the question of, well, uh, the WHO and the IARC, he called it, did studies and testing to identify whether or not glyphosate was a probable cause for lymphoma. For cancer. Correct. Carcinogenic. And when they identified that it was probable, right? He said it's not it's not certain guarantee. He said that in cases and not all cases, he kept saying that cuz I think he was he's really trying to approach this with science. And I like that. With data, with with provability, not with well my gut tells me that you should that, that this is just going to be something that's going to cause cancer all the time. And he said, I want to look at each individual case. And he rejects some. He's like, I'm not going to test out all of them. Yeah. He's like, if I think that glyphosate caused cancer in this person, I'll, I'll be there. Yeah. But in some cases, it's, I don't know that this is what it is. Mm -hmm. That sucks that that person's got you know, lymphoma or cancer. He's like, but. There were other contributing factors. There was other contributing factors that, that could be the reason why they've, and, and it's not always glyphosate. And yeah. however, 
when you take these different probable causes and you stack them up. And then what you do is start to pull them out. You say, okay, let's look at this person's life. Let's talk to them. Let's look at their history. Is this an issue? This one isn't. Okay, let's take, let's take this one out. Let's take this one. And then when you're, when you're looking at the stack and, and you're like, man, some of the main things that left on that stack, you know, one of them is glyphosate. Now we've got a probable cause as to why you have this issue. And that's a huge deal for me because if you're eliminating variables in your life and you want to reduce the risk of certain ailments and issues, there's a reason why I don't smoke cigarettes. Yeah. Like, should I be looking at people and be like, hey, uh, you're a terrible person. He's, no, that's not what I'm saying. But if you're choosing to smoke cigarettes, you know the risk. You're choosing to increase your risk. You're, you're making a choice to increase your risk. That's fine. That's your choice to make. I get into my vehicle and I drive down the road. You're choosing to risk it in a car accident. I am. Yeah. And so yeah. it's, you know, hey, we're, we're, we're looking at these variables, look at this, we're, we're being informed and educated so we can make decisions. Mm -hmm. And I, even talking about if you have to use it, he said. And I want to, I want to touch on that really quickly because what, number one, if you're in a residential use, there's no reason you have to. You I don't think use, so. You can use vinegar, salt, and water, and you can kill even your Even if, let's, okay, this is something that I like to bring up. Let's say it is safe, but there's doubt. Well, um, it's, it's just one of those things where it's like um, better safe than sorry kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. Like, wh What if you're right? Okay, cool. Then you get to kill your weeds. What if you're wrong? Mm -hmm. it, the, the risk doesn't, I, I think the return on investment or re return on the risk there, it doesn't make sense. This is what I... You could kill weeds and not necessarily deal with a potential risk factor that isn't right hundred percent proven mm -hmm. it just seems it seems like an easy decision to make i think people are so entitled to this idea that they deserve to have a, a quick solution to every quote weed in their life it's the same method as popping a pill or whatever it's like well glyphosate kills it first time mm -hmm. i should be able to spray something and kill my weeds mm -hmm. well let's back that up a little bit why do you feel like you as a la temporary landowner, because you're not going to own this land forever, have the ability to apply a problematic chemical to the land so that you can instantly kill? Why? Do, what? Who gives you that right? Why do you feel like you deserve that? Hmm. Why don't you feel like you need to exert some force and effort? Maybe hmm, here's the thing. Hand pull it. Hmm. Can you hand pull it? Because I've spent like four hours in our lawn. I imagine there's some people that can't digging. pull it by hand. Okay. Or don't have the time. There's or, that's fair, but here's the other thing too. Like, what are we? What's our goal? A green lawn totally. with no dandelions. Well, that's what I'm saying. The sacrifice seems minimal. I didn't go as deep as you did on the, you know, uh, I'm not going to own the land forever. But I I agree with you. I'm just backing it up here. Uh, it, it comes down to this, like, well, I should have a, a safe product that that is really really convenient. Well, I, yeah, that's in the consumer market. I can understand that, but do you need it? Totally. It, it's, it's truly about what are you gaining as a result of using it and, and what are you potentially risking? And that's that was my point was, man, if you're, if you're getting a nicer lawn or, or you're, you're not having to deal with some weeds along the side of your driveway, like those sorts of things. Here's um, another good alternative. We have torched our driveway. Yeah, Fire. Torch. Fire will kill the weed. Mm -hmm. And it does a fantastic job. It's kind of fun. We did it on the patio too in the back. Mm -hmm. And so you have vinegar salt water solution that you can spray like on the rocks around our pool. I'm mm -hmm. going to spray that. Keep in mind if you spray that somewhere, plants will not grow. So don't do it in a place if you're going to shift around your totally. landscaping. If you're in a hard service, like a hardscape, like concrete or whatever in between bricks or stones, use fire. Mm-hmm. 
uh, like you just said, blowtorching it. And always pulling it is, is an option. And pulling it is a third option. There's this wonderful little tool. I'm going to link it in the description below because I bought it and I literally spent four hours hand pulling the dandelions out of my yard. And it it's this little, um, it looks like a really long, elongated screwdriver with a little kind of split tongue, like a snake's tongue. Mm-hmm. And it goes in, it gets under the root and it pops up the dandelion very easy. It's its sole purpose. Mm-hmm. Buy that thing hand pull get your kids in there if if at anything you want your kids to just help out and all your dandelions sprout their little uh yellow heads have your kids pull them so that the seeds don't spread there's four options right there in addition (laughs) to weed killing you (laughs) i'm just trying to give the people some options i love it Uh, other options that we could look into in addition to how we deal with our weeds but is food you can look at the natural products and yes. good news, there's natural, organic, and, and, and glyphosate-free products on the market. We actually have one of those markets. You could source from our market, is what I'm trying to say here. You could buy coffee that is clean, tea that is clean. Anything else we got there? I mean, nothing more that's consumable, but yeah. I think it comes down to consumer choice and uh, consumer education. And one of the reasons why we opened up Hazelmeyer Goods is because... Not only have people been asking for like years, where do you buy this or where do you get this? But we also saw some products that were like, hey, we need some innovation here. Mm-hmm. I actually think this could be done better. Totally. And we, we, we're we not like, okay, now let's take it to this giant manufacturer and have it made overseas. We're going to find the people who are the best equipped to make that product and then we're going to retail Maybe we need to start it. working on some weed killer, honestly. I mean, what, pour some vinegar and salt in the bottle? I mean, if there's a formula that we have to create, I'm in. Anyways, he was just saying, hey, maybe there's some entrepreneurs out there. I'm like, maybe that's us. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you spearhead that because I think I'm out. Anyways. Shoptheh.com. Go get yourself some coffee, some tea, some lard dish soap. Stay clean. Stay naturally minded. Just try to avoid things like glyphosate. Sounds, you know, you heard it from the man himself. Um, it's a risk factor. What, what, what did he say? You know, double your chances of of lymphoma or cancer if you use it once or twice a year or something like this mm-hmm. um, craziness craziness the uh book that he wrote mm-hmm. we have to get it toxic exposure 100%. i own a digital copy oh right on mm-hmm. so he gave us that before we yeah got it well i didn't know that we had that mm-hmm. now we know but i think we should get a hard copy and put it on our bookshelf i'm in i'm in and read it well of course well yeah okay um if you liked this episode, I'm just like, uh, I'm processing so much here. It's crazy. My brain is like mush from all the, 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 the information. It was so much new. I loved it. Joey's energy stores are depleting. If you enjoyed Dr. Nabin, get his book, get on Amazon, find his podcast, check him out. He's on Twitter. Mm-hmm. He said, he, he said Facebook. I didn't hear him say Instagram. Instagram. No, he said Instagram, Instagram and Twitter. If you wanted to hear more from us, you could do that. Mm-hmm. We're on Instagram. No Twitter, really. Do we have a Twitter? Uh, it's not very functional. Homegrown underscore education. Joey Hazelmeyer and Liz Hazelmeyer. You have those handles on Instagram. You can find us there. You can find our website where we have other educational products and books, digital versions that you can purchase and download, print off, learn from homegrown.org www.homegrowneducation.org homegrowneducation.org find those things <laughs> um Hazelmeyer Goods has an Instagram mm-hmm. we forget about that mm-hmm. you can find that at 
Hazelmeyer Goods. Yeah, you sure can. And until next time, that's a wrap. <laughs>